2 Kings 8, verses 1 through 15. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she first, that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus. Forty camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Do you remember which founding father wrote those famous words? They were penned by Benjamin Franklin. In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Personally, I like to add dishes to that list. Nothing is certain except death, taxes, and dishes. The point, the point is that Very few things are certain in this world. Very few things are certain. What was uncertain for you this past week? What was uncertain for you? Some of you know that my son, Zach, had a surgery on Tuesday. It was a planned, preventative, low-risk kind of surgery, and it went well. 
But still, he's not quite eight months old, and it was hard to see him in a hospital room. It was a sad reminder for me that no one's life, not even a child's life, is certain. So, again, I ask, what was uncertain for you this past week? What did you lose sleep over? Or what are you anxious about for the coming week? What is on your mind even now as you think about the coming week? It's Memorial Day weekend, but we can lose our freedoms. We can lose our health, our fitness, our homes, our possessions, our jobs. The fact is that there are very few things in this life that we can't lose. This is why we need to hear God's word in 2 Kings 8. This is why we need to hear these two true stories, one about a refugee and one about an assassin. To people who can lose almost everything, this passage tells us what's certain. There is one who is Lord over life and death. There is one who is Lord over life and over death. So first, the true story of a refugee. Now, if you recall, this is not the first time we've encountered this woman. This is the wealthy, married, but childless woman we first met in 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, Elisha came to Shunem, and this woman urged him to eat some food. Please come in, be my guest. And one visit turned into many visits as her and her husband's home became a rest stop for Elisha. They even added on a bedroom so that he'd always have a place to stay. This woman knew that Elisha was a prophet, that he was a holy man of God, and she treated him like one. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus once said to his disciples, the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Did you catch that? The one who receives or welcomes or loves a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Well, this childless woman received Elisha because he was a prophet. And she received her reward, a prophet's reward. She conceived and bore a son. Now, we skip ahead in the story to when the child was a little older, and the story goes like this. He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head! The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. In a moment, her world fell apart. The woman runs to find Elisha and falls on his feet in bitter distress. And how does the story end? Well, we see how it ends in in our passage this morning, 2 Kings 8. Here's what we read in verse 1. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Now, look with me at verse 5. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here's the woman and here's the son whom Elisha restored to life. So in case it's not obvious by now, Elisha restored this dead son to life. He lived again. There is one who is lord over life and death. 
God's prophet raises the dead. So that's the woman. This is the woman we meet again in chapter 8. Elisha had said to her, Arise, depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. There's no time to lose. The king is about to declare a state of emergency that will last for seven years. Seven years. Quick, you and your family must go. Think for a moment about the Lord's care for this woman. There's no mention of her husband, so she's probably now a widow. And what does God's prophet do? What does his prophet do as a seven-year famine looms on the forecast? Well, he seeks out this woman of faith and tells her about the coming disaster. God cares for his people. Now, in our day, we shouldn't expect to hear special predictions from prophets. We shouldn't expect that. But we should expect to see and hear God's personalized care for his people. Many things are uncertain in this life, but God's care for his people is not one of those things. If you slow down and look, you will see. If you slow down and look, you will see that God cares for you. Recently, someone reminded me to slow down and to cultivate thankfulness. I'm finding that my lunch break is a helpful and and good time for me to pause and be thankful. I'm slowly learning to ask, how has God cared for me this morning? And how do I need his care for the afternoon or for the evening? I encourage you, I encourage you, each one of you, to make that a conscious practice. How can you practice thanking God for his care, noticing how he cares for you? What does that look like for you? God cared for the woman in this story. And did you notice her response? How did she respond in verse 2? She did according to the word of the man of God. Well, yes, it was in her best interest to leave because of the famine. But still, she had to leave and abandon her home and her lands. Remember, she was wealthy. She had money. She was well off. For her, faith meant being a refugee for seven years. I can't imagine that. Seven years. Think for a moment about her experience as a woman of faith. On the one hand, consider her son. There was her son, once dead, but now alive again. What more proof could you have each day of God's personal care, his power? What more proof do you need? As she went about each day, there was her son. A constant reminder, God cares for me. But on the other hand, consider her circumstances. Where is she? She's in the lands of the Philistines. For seven long years, she's a sojourn, a refugee, even with her son at her side. Don't you think this experience would have tested her faith? Where where are we going to live tomorrow? Will we have shelter? Where will we eat? Will we have money to eat? And after seven years, what then? What's, What's become of our home and our land? Think about her experience. Well, after seven years, the famine broke. It ended. It came to an end. And here's what we read 
in verses 3 to 6. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to her, appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here's the woman. And here is the son, her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, he told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. It just so happened. It just so happened that the woman walked in as Gehazi was telling her story. This woman returns to the land, and what happens? Her land is returned to her. And it just so happens. There's a theological word for this. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's not fate. It's not coincidence. It's providence. It's providence. It's a short way of saying that God preserves and governs all things. Every blink, every glance, every breath, every happenstance, every accident, everything that's happened this morning, every single thing, nothing happens apart from the preserving and governing hand of God. He holds all things, all things in his hands, even life and even death. Earlier, I mentioned my son's surgery, and as an example of how it just so happens in the Christian's life, when he was born, an ultrasound was accidentally ordered for him. Another baby showed signs of spina bifida, but Zach got the ultrasound. Names got mixed up, and he got the ultrasound. Now, in the process, they found something that was wrong with Zachary, And so they ordered the surgery, and that's the surgery he had this past week. It just so happened. God controls all things. This is what we mean when we talk about providence. And if you are a child of God, God controls and governs all things for your good, for the good of his people. God cares for his people, and he cares for their children. So what do we see in this passage? Among other things, we see that our God is a God who raises the dead. As I pointed out earlier, these verses allude four times, four times to how the son was restored to life, was raised to life. And what does this passage teach us as it comes to a close? What does it have to teach us as the, as the woman returns and appeals to her land and is given her land again? What's the message? Well, it teaches us that the final word for God's people is life. It's restoration. It's homecoming. There is one who is Lord over life and death. Ultimately, the theme of this story finds its greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the prophet of all prophets. He raised Lazarus from the dead and others from the dead. He himself died and was raised from the dead three days later. He proclaimed the good news that all who believe in him receive everlasting life. 
And he is in heaven now preparing a place for his people. There is one who is Lord over life and death. And his name is Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in him? If so, if you are a Christian, then I hope this woman's story sounds familiar to you. I hope it sounds familiar. It should sound familiar because these are the themes of your story and mine. As a Christian, you too are a sojourner, a refugee, a pilgrim. God calls us to walk by faith in a land that is not our home. And friends, each loss reminds us of just that. Every loss, every loss that you've experienced, that I've experienced, will experience, all of these things remind us that this world is not our true home. And just as God restored the woman's home, so he will restore your home. Your hope is not real estate in Israel or in Lancaster, but real estate in heaven. Your Savior is there now, preparing a place for you. In the meantime, your story and mine is like the story of this woman. Our stories, friends, are filled with testimonies of God's personal care and his providence. Our stories are filled with moments of how it just so happened. It just so happened. And one day we will be restored to the promised land. These are the themes that we sang about earlier. In the hymn, Christ is mine forevermore, that last line, the last stanza says, Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ, I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. That's what we sang about earlier, friends. Here's another way of putting it. One of my favorite authors is John Newton. And I think he captures these themes really well. If you have your worship guide, turn to the reflections on page two. This is found on page two. And here's how Newton, the 18th century hymn writer and Anglican pastor, puts it. Page two, that second reflection on your page. Newton says, The true Christian, in strict propriety of speech, has no home here. He is and must be a stranger and a pilgrim upon earth. His citizenship, treasure, and real home are in a better world, and every step he takes, whether to the east or to the west, is a step nearer to his father's house. On the other hand, when in the path of duty, he is always at home, for the whole earth is the Lord's, and as we see the same sun in England or Italy, in Europe or Asia, so wherever he is, he equally sets the Lord always before him and finds himself equally near the throne of grace at all times and in all places. God is everywhere. And by faith in the great mediator, he dwells in God, and God in him. So is anyone home? Anyone home? Well, yes and no. In one sense, we are home. We are always at home. If you're a Christian, then you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. We are near the throne of grace, the throne of power, the throne of comfort at all times and in all places. But we're also not at home. Our citizenship, our treasure, our real home is in a better world. 
And one day, Jesus will come for us, and then we'll be forever and truly home. All of this is true of Christians. This is true of us in Jesus Christ. But what if you're not a Christian? What if you are learning more about Christ, learning more about this good news? Well, I want us to think for a few moments about the king in this story. What does he tell Gehazi? In verse 4, he says, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Tell me all those great, cool, marvelous things. He's interested. He's curious. He's amazed. Did Elisha really raise a dead son back to life again? Did that actually happen? We don't know for sure, but this king is probably Jehoram. He was Ahab's son who, quote, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, end quote. As one commentator points out, this is a picture. What we see here with the king, this is a picture of someone who is charmed but not converted, curious but not committed, fascinated but not faithful. Does does that describe you? Are you a bystander of God's grace? Are you on the outside looking in, curious but not committed? I think of Benjamin Franklin. If you know his story, he heard the gospel many, many times, even from preachers like George Whitfield, that great preacher of the First Great Awakening. Benjamin Franklin heard him preach many times. Benjamin Franklin wrote about it. He was moved, amazed, interested in what George Whitfield had to say. But as far as we know, Franklin never professed faith in Christ. He never acknowledged his need for forgiveness. He never acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. And this means, if that's true, we don't know, but this means that he is in hell now. And he will be there for all of eternity. Are you like Benjamin Franklin? Are you like the king in this story? Are you charmed but not converted? Curious but not committed? Fascinated but not faithful? There is one who is Lord over life and death. This is good news if and only if you turn 180 degrees and run to Christ. There is one who is Lord over life and death. Your life and your death. That's Jesus And as we'll see in the next story, this is bad news for anyone who persists in unbelief. We've considered the true story of a refugee. Now let's consider the true story of an assassin. The story begins in verses 7 and 8 this way. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So, well, I won't keep reading. I'll stop there. Shall I recover from this sickness? The king was tired of get well cards. He wanted to know for certain if he would recover. And who could provide him with this knowledge? Elisha, 
the man of God. And the king of Syria knows it. Now pause with me for a moment. In the first story, the story of the refugee, it's a big deal that her son was raised to life. Four times that one verb is used to stress how the son who is dead is alive. Four times. That same verb is used now four times in this story about the assassin. It's translated, shall I recover, in verse 8. Shall I recover, in verse 9. You shall certainly recover, in verse 10. And you shall certainly recover, in verse 14. So you get, uh, do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? These two stories focus our attention on life and on death. In the first story, we're reminded that a dead son came to life again. In this next story, a king is sick and he's wondering, will I die? These stories are about life and death. Who holds life and death in his hands? As I said, tired of get well cards, the king sends his commander to Elisha. Hazael goes to the prophet and asks, will will the king recover? Will he get better from this sickness? And Elisha has an answer in verse 10. Elisha says, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Sounds to me like Elisha is telling Hazael to lie. This is a tough verse, and we're not exactly sure about the correct wording. We're not exactly sure if it should read, Go say to him, you shall certainly recover, or go say to him, you shall certainly not recover. We're not actually sure which one it is. Either way, the point is the same. Either way, the point is that God knows exactly what's going to happen. Verse 10, the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Verse 13, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And surprise, surprise, how does the story conclude in verse 15? But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. So it came to pass. God is Lord over life and death. And this is not only true for the people of God. This is not only true in Israel. This is true for Syrians, for foreign nations and kings and commanders. When we say that God is Lord over life and death, we mean that he's Lord over life and death completely, entirely. Life and death, whether you're in Syria or Israel, or Lancaster, is in his hands, not in yours. And this is terrifying news for those who persist in their rebellion against God. This is terrifying news. Elisha weeps in verse 11. He weeps. And Hazael, this probably hardened, battle-hardened commander, is unnerved and confused. Why are you weeping? And Elisha says, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. And you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Why? What is this? This is judgment and and death for rebellion against God. If you keep reading in 2 Kings, you will see that this is fulfilled. 
Friends, the message of the New Testament is no different than the message of the Old Testament. In fact, the New Testament is more clear. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What do we deserve for our sins? The eternal, holy, triune God made us in his image to reflect him in his glory. He made us to love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, strength, and mind. This is what we were made to do. So again, I ask, what do we deserve for our sins? What do we deserve when we trash his image, when we disobey his laws, when we profane his name, when we live for ourselves, when we worship other gods? What do we deserve for our sins? We deserve death. And so Elisha says to Hazael, you will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword. You will dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. This is a terrifying picture of God's holy wrath against sinners. This pales in comparison to how the New Testament describes hell. And how do God's prophets respond? How do God's prophets respond to this coming judgment? They weep. Elisha weeps. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, weeps. Jesus, the prophet of prophets, weeps. You may remember that story in the Gospel of Luke. It goes like this. And Jesus drew near and saw Jerusalem. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looks at Jerusalem, this city who has rejected him, and he weeps. Friends, do you see what we're getting a glimpse of here? In this moment, we're seeing a glimpse into the very heart of our God. Our God is a God who weeps over sinners. Now, we're not talking here about Christians. We're not talking about Christians. If you're a Christian, then you're a beloved child of God. Jesus does not weep over you. He rejoices over you. We're talking here about non-Christians. We're talking about people who have turned their backs on Jesus Christ. We're talking about people who persist in rebellion and unbelief and sin. Our Savior weeps over sinners. And so I ask, does he weep over you? Is he weeping over you? When we look at the cross, what do we see? We see that God hates sinners. Look at Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who died, cursed, damned, forsaken in the place of us. God's wrath poured out on Jesus instead of sinners. At the cross, we see most clearly God's holy, righteous, and just hatred for sinners. The wages of sin is death. But friends, look again at that same cross. It's also true 
almost unbelievably true that God loves sinners. Look at Jesus who cries out, it is finished because Jesus so loved the world. This is love that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For the wages of sin is death. Yes, that's true. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is certain in this life? Benjamin Franklin wrote those famous words, In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. I hope you can see that there's more certain than that. God's gospel of grace is certain. His providential care for his people is certain. And our Savior, who's preparing a place for us, will bring us home. Amen.